And Johnny put himself on mute to talk. God. Damn. Well, you muted me coming out. So no, I didn't. electrical. Bad producer. Hey, just so everybody's listening, we are hiring a new producer for the DCP. Uh, please send resumes to our Twitters. Thanks. Um, yep. Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us on another podcast on the DCP podcast, episode 29. Um, you might see a uh, familiar face with us today. It is Olaf Hartong. Uh, we haven't had him. I think it was like, what, episode one. Uh, we had him back first, in the day. First guest, big dog first, right here. First, first guest. Yeah. Um, okay. Went through a couple of iterations uh, until we had him back. So, Olaf, thanks for being here, man. Um, we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, thanks for having me again, guys. Yeah. It's lovely to be back. We appreciate the time you jumping on. I know it's like, what, I think it's 8.30-ish your time right now. Yeah, roughly. yeah it is. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I like the evenings. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for joining us today. We wanted to talk about, we want to congratulate you. I know uh, you just got your new uh, course. I think it's Advanced Detection, except in the Black Hat for training. So congratulations on that, man. That's that's big news. Thank you. Second yeah, yeah. Year, second year in a row, today. right? It is. Yeah, it is the second year in a row. And, and thanks for mentioning that. I'm, uh, I'm stoked. Um, we did last year as well. Uh, it was a slightly different course. So it was Detection Engineering for Windows or Advanced mm. Detection Engineering for Windows. And this year we chose to take a, a, late, a slightly bigger approach because, yeah, Windows is fine. Everybody uses it or a lot, at least a lot of companies use it, but it's not the only thing in their company, right? It's usually connected to an active directory. There's uh, all kinds of other st stuff connected to it, like SQL servers, maybe some Linux, Linux servers. And then, of course, the cloud is so something that you might have heard about. So ki kind of a lot of people are using that. So and and the tech service there is is maybe even bigger than the one within the company. Well, first of all, it's sort of at the internet, so everybody can connect to it. If you probably misconfigure some stuff because yeah, there's there's less knowledge about it. It's somewhat more new, so the likelihood of being attacked there is actually higher. And then there's all kinds of ways to get back from the cloud into the enterprise or the on-prem bit. So we wanted to focus. A little bit on on all these three aspects this time, um, just to to get people a little bit more ready in their roles as a detection engineer or aspiring uh, detection engineer, just to uh, yeah to have some more coverage there. So one of uh, one of the things that I think is worth talking about because one of the big problems as a consumer of training classes, especially at an event like Black Hat, is how do I select the class that I should take? So. Um, I know like previously one of the big, and I assume this is still the case, one of the big selling points of like your training is that it's very much, uh, it has a very strong uh, aspect of MDE or Sentinel uh, involved. And so if you're an organization that uh, uses MDE or has Sentinel or has desires to move that direction, wants to learn how to use Custo queries, things like that, um, that like you're going to be one of the premier organizations for kind of sharing that right so your training class would be a great great place to go is that st still the case in this updated version and uh maybe expand on like if i'm if i'm a person that wants to sign up for a training class at black hat what are some of the things i would get from your class that like would really like uh, in a big picture what would cause me what type of person should i be if i want to take your class i guess that's a good question. Yeah, first of all, yeah, yeah, it will be it will be still focused on on like uh, the Microsoft Sentinel, uh, Defender for Endpoint, mm -hmm. Defender for Identity. It's like the the whole Microsoft stack. Um, 
and this is not because we are a Microsoft reselling house, but it's 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 the tools that we use most of all most of the time for our clients. We also work on Splunk and some other products, but we really uh, got to love the the query language that Microsoft built. It's super quick. Um, it's very flexible. It's super extensive. Um, so that makes it kind of nice, and it works throughout all of their products. So it's actually kind of nice that you can teach somebody how to build a query and it will be applicable in all of the security products. So that that's, yeah, that's why we still stuck to that because it made, it makes the whole research flow a little bit easier. Um, and from a, from a training perspective, I think, I think where we, um, where we're strong or where, why, why we like to do the training the way that we do it is we, we give people some some background knowledge first. They have some pre-work that they have to do, or, or we prefer them do it at least, so that they come to the training prepped. They have some basic skills, so we're not teaching like the basics. We want to immediately dive into the deep end. Um, and what we want to teach them is more of a research methodology, so a practical research methodology, how to investigate attacker tradecraft that they want to be building a detection for. So they. We, of course, select some of the, the attacker behaviors or techniques or procedures, how we want to call it, uh, for them to analyze. Uh, but also, they have to really replicate it because you, can, you can't build a proper detection, in my opinion, mm -hmm. if you're just reading something from the internet, interpreting it, and writing a detection. Because you, you, might, you might get lucky and capture part of that behavior, but understanding what actually goes on is something that you need to be, yeah, first of all, uh, triggering yourself, but you might even need to go into the source code to read what kind of functions is it calling, what's, what is it doing, in order to understand what would I be able to detect, knowing what you would have, right? Of course, we provide them with a lot of telemetry sources and everything is documented, so they know what they have, and we can guide them through the process of understanding what could I have had? Um, what do I have? And what do I do with that? So sometimes they might need to enable some additional logs or they have to accept, hey, I can get this locally, but it doesn't scale to get it into a, a SIM-based solution. That's, that's a really, really important point that I think uh, I think we should touch on as we go through the talk, as, as we go through the, the podcast, because I think there's a big distinction between what you can do at the enterprise level and what you yes. can do once you've created an alert, right? And I think I think too often we try to do, we being just people writing detections in general, we try to do it all in one shot instead of having a phased solution where we say, okay, yeah. this is the amount of certainty that we can get at this level, the enterprise alerting detection level. And then once we have a few alerts that have been generated, is there additional information we could gather that would allow us to increase the certainty with our decision-making? And that seems to be that seems to be a very important aspect of detection and response. Yeah, I, I think there's oftentimes what I've seen within the detection response process is um, prematurely limiting the the next phase. And what I mean by that, like if we think about like telemetry collection and detection, um, like right before creating a detection, right, we have to identify what telemetry sources are available to us. Um, oftentimes, what I've seen in conversations are. I'm going to ignore that telemetry source because it's going to be too noisy or it might have too many false positives. Well, the the real problem is maybe the current technology stack just doesn't allow you to parse those out or add context to them appropriately for which might fit what you want to do 
in that detection um, hypothesis. And so you're limiting your current detection capabilities um, by your, uh, or you're, you're limiting your telemetry identification capabilities with your current detection uh, limitations. Yeah. And so yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. And then also we do the same thing when it comes to creating detections and what we can ingest in terms of alerts. So it's like we create this detection and we're like, oh, let's just go ahead and tune everything in this detection. That way we don't have a lot of false positives. When you're not letting the tail end or you're alerting um, technologies, like if you have like a sore product, like adding context, right? And like creating like a threshold and going above that, like not letting that fulfill its true potential or its full potential um, because you're you're so worried about you know noise or false positives, et cetera. And I see that oftentimes it's like we're gonna limit this prematurely because of another phase's limitations. Yeah. yeah. I th I think that's two different problems, right? So so the first one is is where people start their research, I think, based on a limited data set already, which at some degree makes sense, but in the most cases it does it truly doesn't because you you already put like blinds on and you you don't even see what you could be seeing, which is which is a problem because you can't do anything about it afterwards because you don't have it. So the way we try to teach everyone is to start with a lot of telemetry. Just just enable most of it. So we use Sysmon, for instance. We have a, a very verbose configuration running. So it's going to be generating way more than you would have in your in your enterprise solution because that's it's it's just unfeasible to get that much telemetry for every host. But that's not the purpose now, because if we at least understand on our lab what what can be seen, mm -hmm. and this, and I'm using Sysmon as an example, right? But we're yep. also doing it to other event IDs and and and, and other data sources. But we want to have we want to have as much as we can get because that is practically achievable still it might not be monetarily if yeah. achievable or whatever but at least we we know that we can get that um and then we even go further with procmon and that kind of stuff but let's keep it contained here and then from there we can actually make the distinction does this make must does this telemetry source make uh, a valid detection source so can we use this in the detection flow um, if yes then we'll build that detection and we'll deal with that second part on the enterprise level uh, separately right because we want to have the detection anyway we want to know that we can detect it with that specific data source and then can we interpret that or can we ingest that into into our sentinels blank whatever in a sort of meaningful way that it's yeah, the ROI for that data source is still good because if, if it's costing you like a million bucks a year and it's only able to detect like this basic detection that isn't nice to have but not mandatory, then you probably wouldn't do it. But if mm -hmm. it's like a very, very critical detection for you, you might actually want, want to make that change in your enterprise environment and ingest that log as well. Um, I think that that's one bit, right? So deciding what to log on enterprise level uh, that, that needs to be driven from the detection engineering side partially. Before um, we move on, sure can I, can I comment can on that? You down. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I think when it comes to a lot of times we, we let our sensors limitations be the limitations of our thinking, right? And, so, and we know that different sensors have different capabilities of uh, perception, yeah. perceptual capabilities. They can see different things, right? And so if I have 
uh, Sentinel One versus Carbon Black versus Sysmon versus Windows Event Logs. I may have there's going to be a lot of overlap, but I may have slightly different visibility. So there's the way that I think about it is I think it might be four four steps. So it's like what actions can be taken on the operating system? What actions does the operating system support telemetry generation for? What actions that the operating system supports telemetry generation for does our sensor have the capability of perceiving? Then there's what actions does the sensor have the capability of perceiving that we're actually collecting? Because for instance, Sysmon has the ability to limit visibility through its config file. And then what are we using for detection? And I think a lot of times we stop, we say, what, what does our sensor have the ability to collect? Or even further, what does our sensor have the ability to collect that we are actually collecting based on our config file? And that's the limitation of our, uh, that, that's where we stop ourselves conceptually from thinking about the problem instead of thinking about it more broadly. Because one of the problems might be, you just have, you have the wrong sensor. And I know that's like a long-term problem that you can't solve immediately. Mm -hmm. But it's worth collecting information about about that over time. And as you build up more and more scenarios where actually the limitation is the sensor, it's not the operating system, then you then you have more and more evidence that maybe you need to take a uh, a bigger leap towards solving that problem because that seems to have built up as the limiting factor as opposed to like your config file, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great point. I think I think up to a certain point. Um, we we stop at API level, so we have an exercise where you have to use API monitor mm -hmm. and some 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 even some WinDBG to just see what kind of what kind of functions are called and what kind of arguments are put into it, and then make the translation uh, to to a practical bit because API monitor doesn't really scale, right? You can't you yeah. can't use that in an enterprise yeah. environment. So so at least conceptually think about what tool can actually lock this. If it can't, you at least have the option, as you mentioned as well, either to switch tools on the long term, or maybe also talk to your to your provider of your EDR software mm -hmm. or whichever to to consider uh, adding some stuff. So so that's actually something we do a lot on the research side, is where we see blind spots in Defender for Endpoint, for instance. We talk to the dev teams explain them why we want to have a certain telemetry source in there, what the, what the business case is in terms of what it can detect and how, how useful it could be. And in some cases, they actually also implement it due to those arguments. So having that knowledge, at least on where it can be visualized is, is definitely something that is useful, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a slightly harder and, and less practical. So. Um, I, I do see a lot of people that are interested in it, but not everybody has the time to do this within their day job. So from that perspective, we we touch upon it. We let people figure out that it, this is a possibility and they should look into it for certain cases. And for other cases, accept that the certain telemetry that you currently have is there and use that for a detection for now. Yep. Keep the notes, come back to it later when, when you see your tools get updated. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think that's a good point because I think there's a lot of potential telemetry that like vendors just aren't collecting yet, right? And mm -hmm. like <clears throat> we see, like we go look at ETW providers, we go look at other things. Like one thing that I kind of suggest to people is like if you really want to know maybe what's coming down a pipeline, like go go grab like a Windows Insiders build maybe 
and you can like look at the different like branches and like look at the different providers and there you'll see different things pop up and it doesn't mean it's going to be coming down the pipeline at least in the microsoft stack but you'll you'll be able to at least identify if there's any new telemetry that Microsoft is working on on interfacing, because the reality is, at the end of the day, like we are limited by the telemetry that Microsoft is willing to expose, and like that yeah. goes for any EDR out there, whether it's Sentinel One, CrowdStrike, you know, Carbon Black, whatever. They are limited by the telemetry that Microsoft is willing to expose. MDE and other stacks like that. Like I'm not being an advocate for them, but I'm just saying that they have a more direct feedback with those those devs and the the operating system devs. Be like, hey, like th this would be useful, like. A good example of this is um, like I just recently took Pavel's Com course and it was phenomenal. And I was like looking through and you know part of my phase when I'm looking at like uh, potential offensive capabilities of a technology is I'll go through like okay now when I identify um, you know telemetry collection capabilities. This isn't I'm not even thinking about the detection piece yet, right? I'm just looking for telemetry that's going to expose the behavior by which I or the operation that I uh, that <clears throat> I executed and seeing if anything exists. And there's actually like a really good ETW provider. However, like they have the appropriate events, but the metadata is literally not there. Um, it'll just show like an interface UID and maybe a process ID. And you now you can go back and you can find like the process ID name and all that stuff. You can pull all that. But regardless, like there's still too little information for me to even conceptually think about leveraging that for a potential detection in the future. There's more work that has to be done there. And I think like yeah. that's a really important process to go through for anybody who's going through detection is there's there's the piece of what do I have exposed to me today? What am I collecting from what is exposed to me today? Um, what is like realistic for me to use for a detection for whatever these things are? And that's a big thing, too, is not just leveraging one one source of telemetry for a detection. Like we talk about detection layering, right? Like um we have to leverage multiple sources of telemetry to even be to think about being successful in that. But then the you know have another thing, and that is simply knowing what telemetry is being exposed that isn't being collected by my sensor yet. And like, although like it might not be practical today, so that's why like I've talked about you've I know all three of you have heard me say like the difference between research telemetry and scalable telemetry, and that is simply from what is the EDR ingesting then now exposing to me that I can leverage because people can come out with ETW tools all day, but I know the attack surface on an endpoint well enough to know I'm not dropping some dude's rando binary as system to collect ETW events or even hot, like, like admin, right? Because someone could inject into that and I'm probably not watching that process as well as I should. Like I'm adding to my attack surface for what percentage of telemetry, right? That ROI might not be worth it. And so it's like, you have those back and forth there. Yeah, and the, even, the vendor is tool would be epic, right? Then, sorry, Jared. Then, the, oh. then the tool and like Sysmon. Sysmon is a great tool. Everybody, yeah. at least in in this call, knows about it, and and probably a lot of other people. It's 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 uh, Microsoft Science. It's built by Sysinternals. It's uh, granted it doesn't have like a full uh, support tier on it, but it's it's like a very trusted piece of software and even rolling that out in at scale is extremely difficult there's all kinds of complications it teams that don't want another agent these kind of things so um we kind of rely on those those bigger vendors to actually start expanding that that telemetry set because most it teams aren't really eager to roll out all these additional tools even if their security uh, uh benefit is huge 
Yeah, I was just going to say that I think the there's a personal value to the research telemetry aspect, which is you have a better understanding of how things work. But there's also a industry advantage as well in the sense that as you find things that are useful from a research perspective, you can provide that feedback back to your EDR vendor. And that is an input that would allow them to potentially prioritize that as something that they want to integrate into the tool. Yeah. So like one of the reasons why, there's probably tons of reasons, but one of the major reasons why EDR vendors don't expose certain telemetry sources is because nobody's asking for it. And so if nobody's asking for it, then it's not even going to get, get on the list to even determine whether it's reasonable. There, there may be other things like how noisy is this, how much context does it provide, all that kind of stuff that Johnny kind of alluded to. But um, it's not even going to make it on the list unless somebody is asking for it. Yeah, and that, that that's that's totally fair. They they have a business case on multiple levels. Usually, the EDRs are are cloud backed, so yeah. they are running a, a whole infrastructure to ingest all that telemetry. So there is a cost to it that that definitely factors in. But I, I totally agree with the with the ask. So if nobody's asking for it, they they don't expose it. And and yeah. I know Defender for Endpoint probably the best of all the EDR tools. So that's why I'm referring to it. But all of the other ones have similar things, I guess. Yeah. Um. And and there even there there I recently put out another sort of comparison between what the EDR is ingesting but not exposing to us as telemetry, but it's actually visible on the timeline perspective. And that's even probably a limited set of what it's actually collecting, analyzing like programmatically on the background, but never exposing to us only as an alert. You have to just trust that it's using a data source that that is useful, but it's not it's not available for for the general public for from primarily probably the reason that the engineer itself didn't think about the human or they like the analyst perspective. Um, and, and maybe sometimes there is a, some, some additional business case uh, to be made internally, but that's totally valid. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I really like, I will say is I, I really have enjoyed your guys's blogs on exposing kind of nuances that like MDE has. So like what is available in timeline versus what is it actually collecting? What is it being exposed to us now? How much in this timeline can we actually query real time? Like all of those type of like conversations that I think aren't necessarily investigated a lot, but I think is super important. Like there is a cost thing that happens. So we have to remember that like MDE, for example, if we're talking about solely MDE, we have to remember that like uh, there's multiple components to that, one of which is a driver. And so a lot of, one thing that I see oftentimes is um, kind of the shitting on vendors or micro and or Microsoft or the Microsoft on not exposing certain telemetry as it relates to certain operations. A good example of this is like, I'm about to light the whole Kerberos people on fire is like, is Kerberos, for example, right? There's the 4768, 4769 event, right? When it comes to the, uh, the tickets, right? Requesting tickets, different types of tickets. Okay. So, those events are nice. However, it doesn't hold as much, you know, telemetry as some people may, may want. Every time that conversation comes up, I'm, I always ask like, okay, what are you really wanting? What are you expecting to see? Right. Um, and so oftentimes that's not answered well when it is answered well, it's like, okay. So you want the client side information as well. Well, what you have to realize is it's not necessarily realistic for a domain controller to collect all the information of the request. Right. Like it might not be, may not be possible. Correct. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know. We'd have to look into that. 
And so to be like, why doesn't Microsoft expose this telemetry or that telemetry? It's like, well, I think that's an in, I think that's an important question, but you yeah. have to be able to identify what's possible and what's not possible. Can we talk like can we just talk technically about that problem? Like yeah, are absolutely. you guys interested in that conversation? Yep. Okay, so yeah. generally speaking, there's there's uh in something like Kerberos, but in tons of different things, basically every RPC interaction, which is way more than you would ever expect for like way more things use RPC than you would ever expect. As you start looking into it, you realize everything on on my on Windows is RPC, right? And that means that there's a client server relationship, right? And when you think about telemetry, you can choose to look at things from the client perspective, right? Which if you think about like subjectivity versus objectivity, the client side is subjective. And the, or you can look at it from the server side, which is objective, right? And when I say subjective versus objective, the attacker has control of the client side, but not the server side, right? Now, when we think about what actually happened, we are actually interested in both the client and the server side. But the problem is, is that it's basically impossible for the event to be generated with both perspectives in it. And so you have to have some sort of correlation involved. Now, you could you could institute, for instance, the protocol in, in uh, Kerberos example to where you say, when you make a Kerberos request, you need to send the client information with the request. That's not how the that's not how the standard is written today, and it's unlikely that that's how the standard is going to be written in the future. It's not going to get updated to do that. But even if they did update it, there's nothing that would be forcing the client to adhere to telling the truth in the standard. Correct. Right. And so, yeah. like you, you like one thing that we look at is what was the process that made the Kerberos request? Well, generally speaking, it's going to be LSAS, just because that's you know Kerberos is relatively complicated and there's lots of heavy lifting. And so they've created APIs that allow you to make, allow a programmer to make a Kerberos request without having to know all the details about how Kerberos works. And that API funnels that request through LSAS for you, right? Um, Rubius is an example um, of a tool that skips that, that step. And so one thing that you might do is say, I want to see a Kerberos request that's not, that's not coming from LSAS. Well, that's a client side query, right? But you don't you don't actually see the server side's reaction, and so you you start to make assumptions. Like uh, a common way to do this is show me a port eighty eight connection where the the destination port is eighty eight because that's the Kerberos well known port, and the process is not LSAS. The problem is is that port eighty eight is supposed to be and generally is Kerberos, but that doesn't mean that it has to be Kerberos, and so you have some room for error there, and then also. There are a number of different types of Kerberos requests that might flow over port 88, and you don't have visibility into that. On the server side or on the network layer, you do have visibility of that, but then you don't have the, the, the client process information. And so you, there's some decision of like, I probably should trust the server side more because the attacker theoretically doesn't have access to that yet. But maybe I'm missing client information, which may, be, may, or, may, may or may not break the case that I'm making of whether this is malicious. Right, but if I go to the client side, I don't have context on what type of request was being made. I don't even know that it actually was Kerberos necessarily, um, and I could be being lied to because the attacker has control of that system, and so it's a bad, it's a potentially a bad faith actor in this case. Yeah. And so those are like some of the problems that I see. I'm curious, kind of what you guys think about that. Yeah. So, so there's a couple things there. So one of which is, if we really want to. So oftentimes we go look at detections today, like to your point, like 
they're very much heavy on the client side. Question is, why is that? Well, I think part of that is because there's a lot of open source tools and people like to log on command lines. People like to log on specific processes, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, however, if we, but the problem is, is the client is only requesting an operation be executed. It's not necessarily executing it. Now, there are situations that things do happen in process. But I'm saying in any time a request leaves the current container of a process and goes to another, like it is requesting that operation to be done. Now, the server side or the target. Process, what are some examples? Can you give us some examples of that real quick? Um, where, where it like leaves? I know you know them, so I'm just kind of, but I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think a good example of that is like if I'm requesting a service to be created, if I do like sc.exe to create a service, like I'm not at that sc.exe is not actually, um, you know, creating the service technically. It's just making a request to create the service. And then like privileges, access gets checked, validating the SRM, which is held within services.exe. Um, not SRM, sorry, sorry. The SCM within uh, services.exe goes and actually creates the service. Yep. Um, same thing if like I'm going to like create something in the registry, right? Like I use a tool to do that and it's going to make calls. Typically, a lot of times it's under RPC, um, that or com com rbc whatever it may be and so or if like i am wanting to request access to lsas right to dump its creds like i'm making a request to go read lsas's memory um lsas is also or not lsas but the access that is uh preventing or allowing access to lsas is going to say yes or no but then it's going to it's going to then perform those apis right so something has to leave that container okay and so um if if we look at it from that perspective, the server side is really what goes and performs those operations. Now, the issue with not the issue, one of the problems or the hindrances of doing a detection solely based on the server side is it's going to be noisier. And so because you're it, it's going to be the server and it's in charge, like service.exe, for example, is in charge of all services, like it is going to either create, start, stop, delete services all day long. Right. And that's just kind of what it does. Um and so, well, it's like, well, how do we get past that, right? How do we limit the false positives? Well, like a, an, an alternative is to trigger on like the server side performing the operation and then tracking back the client. Now, theoretically in process or not in process, locally, that's a lot easier to do than remotely. It's still possible remotely. And I'll, I'll explain an example in a moment. But locally, it's easy. You can use like login IDs. You can use like, parent process GUIDs or target GUIDs, things like that. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. Um, and I know I think all of us have shown examples of that, right? <clears throat> now, remotely, it's a lot harder to process because like I, if I, anytime you do remote, uh, like lateral movement or remote execution, there's going to be some type of logon that happens with that. But like, I think I did this once. Um, I know like Andrew Schwartz and Charlie Clark once were talking about like Kerberos activity and things like that. And I was like, well, just tie back the client. And they were like, well, how do you do that? And so, I showed like I have like a Splunk and I show I have a Sentinel query of like tying that back to the client and saying who made the request. Now I'm not necessarily creating a detection based off of that. I'm just showing that like, hey, you can actually pull the client information. Now the problem with the client again is that the information could be wrong. Like the 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 attacker has full control over that, right? So to expect all that to be on the server side again is like incorrect. Like that's not going to be valuable in the sense of like it might not be true. And so to collect all that information might not even be possible, but um, that that's one I'm kind of rambling here, but that's kind of like the, the problem that I see with detection a lot is we're, we're looking at the wrong thing 
And, um, and we talked about this on the live the other day. Just because I request something doesn't mean it was executed. Doesn't mean it actually happened. Um, and so. when you request something and then, it, and then don't execute it, if I'm looking at the request and acting as if the request is telling me about execution, the delta between requesting and executing are literally false positives. Correct. That's literally what they are, right? And so if we Definitely. can eliminate that, it would be nice, right? That's, yeah, yeah the, hand, the handle one is, is a great example for that as well, where a lot of people are building detections. I've done it years ago as well, not knowing that the handle logs for Sysmon, for instance, are, are the handle requests, right? Yeah. So you, you get granted a handle or a specific access right, which can be everything that you request, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you use it, yep. nor that you require it even. So so we can we can request all kinds of access rights and never use them. And that's yep. the same, I think, with the Gerberos example again. From the client side, you you might have some indicator that something is iffy uh, because LSAS is not connecting to uh, to the domain controller uh, over port 88, but it's uh, fluffybunnies.exe, whatever. Yep. Yeah. Um, which might be valid, right? It might be Java renamed because Java has its own implementation that's as right. one of the it few. Does. That's the one that's um, the noisiest, I think. It's the pretty terrible, <laughs> um, but it, it 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 it's still a rare occasion, right? So that might actually be a feasible indicator, or might be a detection, depending on your organization. But then you have to correlate that with successful issues, yep. service tickets, or or other tickets on the Kerberos side. Yep from that same IP and, and within that same timestamp. And, and if you combine those two things, they at least can make the, this sort of the distinction. Hey, this, this looked weird. It was successful. And then maybe you can even have a look at where is that tech ticket used. So if, if it's connecting to some other machine and that, then you also have an indicator of lateral movement. So this is more where building a correlation is, is pretty difficult from a detection perspective because there's too many factors. So one of the things that we're looking into is building sort of a, a scoring system where we can quantify, hey, this, is, this event is actually kind of high risk, high confidence, and this one is lower risk, uh, but still high confidence. And there's all kinds of things that might be low confidence as well, where we see all kinds of, I don't know, win or end movement or something like that, which in and of itself is definitely not worth alerting upon, but having that event noted uh, might actually be useful because then you can sort of work with a sort of basic algorithms to score all of those, those alerts over time or those triggers over time and factor in those actual alerts that you found interesting. And then if it becomes above a certain threshold, then you can actually start popping it to an analyst say, hey, these are all the things that we've seen happen on that machine or tied to that account, IP, whatever. Um, you, sh you should have a look at this because this is out of the ordinary. So it's not an anomaly detection kind of like thing, but it's sort of an agomation, what are you going to call it, of, of a sequence of events that actually might be more than uh, um, just weird. Yeah. Well, the one thing I love about that approach, Olaf, is like, because I know we've talked about this as well, is like the whole threshold level and scoring. Is it, is it inherently forces the organization to accept what their risk level is and their like how much false positive, false negatives they're allowing in on the org? And what I mean by that is like, if you go to a lot of people, they're like, oh, we like, we don't want a lot of risk. We want to see everything. Well, it's like, well, there's a money problem. There's a technology stack problem. It's like, do you really want to see everything or do you want to conceptually see everything? 
Um, but then if you start to build these stacks and you build out like a scoring mechanism, um, it's like, hey, listen, under this threshold, something still could be malicious, right? So you have to inherently accept that, um, yeah. which I think super, super awesome. And it's not like it has to be a blanket statement of threshold, like every detection is above this number. It's like, no, that that's going to, it's going to depend on the detection and whatever the technique may be, but it's still, I think it's, it, it forces acceptance, which I think oftentimes is it's kind of like, Hey, we're going to toss this detection in and like hope someone else makes a decision of if it's too loud or not. And then tune it. And that's a dangerous game. There's yeah, a, and, but, but tuning is usually putting the blindfolds on again or the blind, yep. the blinders like with the horse. And that, that creates a tunnel vision up to only what you know is bad. And yep. that's, that's, that's okay. Right. Having a signature rule is fine. But you also need to do something with the whole the whole blind spots, and this is this. I see Jared smile already. This is, he yeah. loves this. So, um, but and 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 that's a difficult problem. So so uh, false positive is at first a very sensitive and delicate term, right? Because my my interpretation of false positive is probably similar to what you have, but in the industry, false positive is just something that is is benign in their in the interpretation of the analyst. But then it's a benign positive in my opinion, because the rule triggered on the behavior that you wanted to see, and that yeah. behavior occurred, just it was safe this time. Yeah. yeah well, the maybe, the problem the, the problem is is that we're actually when we talk about like the reason why you say benign positive is because, um, and I'm not saying just you, but people that's like a very common thing, right? Like a true false positive or some you know benign false positive. What they're what they're doing is they're actually conflating two separate decisions, right? Um, into into a single decision. So in in signal detection theory, which is the academic discipline for how how we measure our ability to detect signals from noise, right? Which is what we're trying to do. But it's it's not just a cybersecurity thing. It's like doctors detecting tumors on t CT scans. It's um, if you've ever taken like an auditory test where they put you in like a soundproof room and you have to push the button when you hear a sound. Yep. That's signal detection theory at work as well, right? So this is a thing that transcends cybersecurity. And one of my big problems is that we act like it's a unique problem to us and don't try to take any lessons learned from these more, uh, these kind of like better developed fields. Anyway, they, like, but in signal detection theory, there's actually two different categories, right? And this makes it confusing because it has the same name. But the first one is detection, which is, do I even perceive the signal in the first place, right? So think about it this way. It's like when a, when a service is created, Let's say I'm trying to detect malicious services, right? Malicious service creation for the purposes of lateral movement or whatever. The first question is, can I detect when a when a service is created at all? Like how how accurate is my ability to perceive service creation, right? And if I use like a 46, what is it, a 4697 event from the Windows event log, I have probably like a 90% uh, detection score, right? Uh, but there's going to be a subset of services that can be created by just making direct changes to the registry that I'm not going to perceive, right? And so that's a problem when we get to the next step, which is discrimination, right? And so it's like, now that I've made this list of all the services that are created, how do I distinguish between malicious services and benign services? And so like signal detection theory, the, when you say benign true positive, the true positive aspect is a detection, is being applied to the detection step and the benign is being applied to the discrimination step. And that's like basically what people are doing are we, and this could be a technology problem is our technology kind of forces us to collapse those into one decision. 
Um, but but in actuality, it's two decisions that we're making simultaneously. And that's why that's why there's this confusion of benign, false positive, you know, whatever, whatever the whatever the different categories that people use are. Yeah, that, that's totally fair. I, th I think it's both. Um, and it's also a lack of time to properly, properly assess it. Uh, I think I think Rapid7 at some point, I think a year ago or something, published a a better classification system because they, they also wanted to sort of do some AI on all of the alerts that they had since they run a managed service and so on. And they wanted to figure out um, how good are some of our detections, how and, and and even wanted to build some 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 of those Markov chain like behaviors where yeah. X leads to Y leads to Z. Um, and and they they quickly ran into the issue where there there wasn't enough context in in the the way that they close their alerts because they usually close it with a true positive, false positive, some other thing. Um, so they started working on a way more granular level where you have to actually, actually, I think they have like four factors that you have to add to every ticket or incident that you handle, mm -hmm. um, which makes it easier and it's probably still not verbose enough, but it, it at least makes, makes distinct, distinguishing the, the differences between some of those things, uh, a, a little bit easier programmatically or at scale. Um, and then you still, of course, have the, the the whole analyst problem, where a lack of knowledge, or a lack of time, or or a lack of I don't know attitude in terms of willingness to investigate or wanting to know or understand, and, and probably way more factors than I can think of in the, in these couple of seconds, yeah. way all, all way in into how that that uh, alert is being being analyzed, and then if if I now make a certain call, write that to a ticket, hopefully I document it well. But what I see in practice is a lot of people just close it. Hey, this this doesn't look vindicious, close it, and it's gone. Yeah. Yep, and yep. and there, there's all kinds of reasons for that. So I don't wanna I don't wanna talk about that. But the the the, the, the it has a cascading effect there, right? Because the next week, uh Johnny gets the same ticket on that same machine. He looks back in the history, maybe. Um, and he sees, hey, Olaf closed it already. It was a false positive then. So, hey, I'm busy. It must be a false positive again because it's the exact same thing. Um, and in some cases, that actually might be true. Yeah. If it was properly documented why it was a false positive or however you want to classify that. <coughs> Sorry. That, then at least something needs to be done about that detection maybe in the first place. But um, in most cases... What I see in practice is that it's just, okay, it was false positive, so it is false positive. And that's dangerous because, yeah, an attacker isn't stupid either. They also uh, uh, know how to mimic system behavior. And sometimes they even get access to the Jira environment or the or whatever the ticketing system is. And they can, they can see how things are being analyzed and just replicate that behavior and fall in the cracks. So having that, that more... Uh, rated system where you can classify every alert and everything, um, then there's no way around it, right? So, so if the behavior looked similar, but it's actually different, um, that's all kinds of things that you can automate. And of course, you can do all kinds of automation actions on these triggers to to sort of um, yeah have, have sore like capabilities where you can augment, enrich, put more context around the incidents to at least give an analyst more body to look at 
even though they don't fully understand the problem, they at least can derive more from that context and they should escalate it in my opinion. But yeah, I don't know. I, you can't judge like some, some people because they're also limited by the resources that they get. You, you brought up something um, I think is very important. I want to touch on is looking at an alert and you look back and it was a false positive before, and then just classifying it and moving on. Um, I've seen that a lot. Um, and although like, there might be a like volume level to which maybe your confidence will go up in like doing that to an alert. I have a general issue with inherent trust on someone else's decision. What I mean by that is not that you shouldn't trust your team. What I mean by that is at this time, this thing was executed. It might not be the same as whenever mm-hmm. someone else saw it a week ago or yesterday. Right. And so I have to go through the proper process to validate that whenever I classify that activity, that like I'm confident in it. However, what if when you inherently trust someone else's false positive classification, um, you are now allowing that activity in your org, and you've now given that attack for the way to like just step in and do what they exactly. Do. Yeah, I think there's a so there's a few things that could go wrong. One, your colleague could have misclassified it right that's an error that they made and like they could have just misclassified it two it's it's not exactly the easiest thing to determine if two things are actually similar enough to where you could treat them as if they're equivalent right so like the two events just like these two events like we you know last week johnny looked at something this week i'm looking at something and they appear to be the same just the fact that one happened last week and one happened this week means that they're they are not literally the same. They're literally different, right? The the question is is are they similar enough that I can treat them as if they're the same? Right? And that's like a huge mental model, right? When I go to the grocery store and I want to buy an apple, I think I probably have talked to both of you about this, but just for the edification of the the audience, it's like when I go to the grocery store and I buy an apple, like Maybe there are some major distinctions that would cause me to treat two apples as being different, right? Maybe one's a Granny Smith apple, one's like a Pink Lady or Fuji apple or whatever. So like the variety of apple matters potentially because one's sour, one's not sour. Maybe I look at the apple to see if there's like major blemishes or like a worm is inside the apple or whatever. But outside of that, I actually literally don't care, right? The different, like the minor differences that are between below the like, you know, major defective you know, something that's obviously defective. I I don't care about them. They're similar enough. I don't think it's obvious in cybersecurity, whether, whether two events are the same, because like are two services the same, if they have the same service name, probably not. Right. Because like I could just, the name there's, there's no like name collision issue. So you could, you could, you could just name it whatever you want. Right. Are two services the same, if they have the same binary path, Probably not because Maybe. the binary that's backing up that binary path could be different, right? And so, like, how, like, what exactly do you need to look at in order to determine whether or not two services are similar enough that you can take what you did previously and apply it to this new new instance? And yep. sometimes, I like on the service front, I don't even know that you could do that very well because the cert, like, the binary that the main factor of whether a service is malicious is probably the binary that's being executed, yep. and that's like the hash of the binary isn't even stored in a service, like no service event includes the hash of the binary. And so then it's like, well, you know, how oh, do we, how do we trust this? Man, that made me think. Okay. So I, 
that makes me think too is like at what point do we really want to detect an operation so like you have like a string of operations let's say so you have like let's take services for example because we use that a lot as an example service creation service execution service modification do we truly know if that service is bad until it's executed until it starts um sometimes it depends right if somebody replaces the binary and you know the hash to be malicious then of course it is but in a lot of cases you you might not know yeah uh, unless yeah there there are weird factors but then they, it is an indication of possible maliciousness and not yeah you, you know when you know when it happens right so probably not yeah. this is like this is like uncertainty theory right so we're facing uncertainty. We actually don't know what the service is going to do when it's executed, right? Yep, exactly. Yep. But there is some amount of meta, in this case, metadata about the service, the name, the start type, um, the, the binary path, right? The, um, the service type. There may even be evidence, like you talked about earlier, Johnny, of like, what was the process that requested that the service be created? Yep. Was it created through the API or was it created directly in the registry? There's a number of different, was it created locally or was it created remotely? Theoretically, you could glean all that information about the service before the service is executed, right? And all like each one of those is going to give us more information. And by definition, information reduces uncertainty. It's, there's a factor of like how much uncertainty are we reducing? That's that's variable. But then there's also like technically, I can when I like you could create a automated pipeline that says when a service is created, I want you to go and download the file that's backing up the service, and I want to run it through an automated sandbox. And like, and so you could, most people aren't doing that, I would imagine, but you, you could theoretically, sometimes the, like, you're going to run into errors to where like the file doesn't actually exist, or there's going to be all kinds of issues with that, but you could do that. And in doing that, you may be able to make a decision before it's literally executed, assuming yep. that there's some period of time between execution, but so kind of, but then there's, when it's executed, you're getting enterprise wide telemetry that would tell you when this service is executed these are the things that happen and so there's different different bits of information that are going to be available depending on the depending on the operation that's executed i suppose i think it's important for us to like think like why we want to detect malicious service creation yeah. and i think it's in the hopes that we catch it before it executes because if it executes it might be too late. Like, you know, like whatever is going to run code wise, like not too late. Like I'm talking about theoretically here, like too late in the sense like this code executed. And so it might go do something before maybe an analyst can get to it or before whatever it is. Or maybe I don't have, I'm worried I don't have the proper telemetry to see when that was executed and see exactly what was being executed um, or in what it's interfacing with. So I think wanting to detect on malicious service creation is still a good idea, but like, it is in the hopes that we catch something before it executes malicious code. I don't yeah, I don't know yeah. if I agree with that because I like I would no. say that I would say there's value in knowing that bad things are happening even if you can't exactly. stop it. Yeah. yeah. Like but obviously I, obviously I prefer to stop it before it happens, but like yeah. there's still value in knowing it happened even well, if that's my, that's my well that's my point. What I'm saying is like if we can stop it before it happens, great. But like I think that is one of the reasons why service creation is like one of those detections that a lot of people want. It's like, it'd be great if we can stop it before it happens, right? But if it does execute, we want to make sure that we do have another layer there. But like, I hear a lot of things about like detecting service creation, not a lot about service execution, right? And so like, the question is why? I'm not saying like you can't detect it. What I'm saying is like, 
it might be more difficult depending on what the code is executed. Yeah, yeah that's a that's an interesting that's an interesting question because like if you so you're saying it seems like there's a bias towards the creation of the service as opposed to the execution of the service. Correct. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that there's more information, probably there's probably more information available. And when I say like I'm using, I'm trying to use information in the technical sense. So like Claude Shannon information theory, information is data that reduces uncertainty, right? So that like you could have data that's trivial, which is like everybody already knows this data. You could have data that's irrelevant, meaning it doesn't apply to the problem that you're trying to solve. Or you could have information, which is data that reduces uncertainty in the in the direction that you're trying to solve a problem. And so execution is probably, service execution will probably have more information than service creation because you could see like, what is the binary actually doing when it's being executed? Um, yep. But people are biased towards service creation. And like, I guess your hypothesis is that people are trying to get ahead of get ahead of it yeah. um i don't know i think that's I, part of it yeah it's also yeah, a shortcut i guess where it's 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 significantly easier to look at that service creation bit because as you mentioned it there's already a dedicated event id for it granted that isn't fully covering everything right but it's it's more accessible it's the same i yeah. think where a lot of people are focused a lot on process creation mm -hmm. and the command line arguments which everybody knows is is easily circumventable but it's also it's it's vastly accessible it's it's Tangible. always there everybody can ingest it everybody can mostly understand it yep. um so it's it's the most accessible way of getting a detection in place and then people are busy they have to move on they want to have a broad coverage so they they stop there that that i think is part of the assumption from from what i see here here's an example of um I mean, this is like a super contrived extreme example, but the thing that's actually running code is a thread, right? But we always look at processes, which processes are essentially containers of threads. Why do we care more about processes than, than threads? One might be processes have a little bit more consistency across iterations of the operating system. So across reboots, like LSAS is going to be LSAS, but the, the threads change, I guess. Um, the other, but the other thing is, is that processes have names. Threads have yep. numbers and yep. those numbers change, right? And so that like there's something to be said about tangibility. So like can I can I envision this thing as being a tangible thing that I could reach out and grab hold of or that I could recognize going like between iterations of the operating system? And I think I think there's definitely a bias towards process creation because processes are the most tangible thing um, that we that we have on computers, right? Because processes are tied to applications basically and so like that's the that's the tangible link as opposed to threads which are actually doing all the bad stuff yeah yeah well yeah i think one thing and like what i was trying to get at was i think it's important to understand why we want a detection for something yeah i think like oftentimes we'll read or like hey this this malicious things out we'll see it on twitter a new tool will come out like yep. for example like explain to me why theoretically like not you guys but like do other people <laughs> Okay, explain to me why you want to see uh, or people want to create a detection on, um, you know, TGT requests from Kerberos, mm. from in Kerberos. Like, why is that valuable? TGT requests? Yeah, like, so like TGTs, but then there's also the TGS aspect as well. Yeah, but so I don't know that, I don't know that anybody should 
because like the attack against TGTs is generally speaking a golden ticket, which is Correct. not making a TGT request. Yeah. So the like the only reason that you would want to monitor TGTs that I can think of off the top of my head is to see when when a TGT is used, but there's no record of it being requested. But that that would require a lot of resources. Yeah. So, yeah. Re like not it was it was like a couple weeks ago I saw someone on Twitter talking about like keeping track of TGT requests and I was just like like why? I think yeah. that's that's my point. So like okay, let's do another one like TGS service tickets requests. Yeah. What what's the value in like monitoring those for a detection? Right? Like we we see I, things like curb roasting and things yeah. like that. Yeah, um, so I think you have to have you have to have a goal for what is the attack that you're trying to detect. And then you have to say, what is the what are the behaviors that that attack implements? So, yep. um, in this case, let's say one of the reasons there may be more than one, but one of the reasons why you would monitor TGS requests is because curb roasting is an attack that leverages T that that will implement that behavior, right? Yep. Um, and there's potential markers in the TGS request that indicate that it's kind of not a normal request. Right now, of course, attackers, this is the subjective versus objective. The request can be built in a way that would mimic the real life uh, implementation and it like they can mimic it more or less. Right. So like the example of Rubius, which makes the direct request itself, that's doing a very poor job of mimicking true behavior of TGS requests. Right. There's a reason why they do that because they don't want to inject stuff into LSAS, which is another, which is a completely different problem. But a lot of EDRs are focused on that, so they they purposely made that decision to evade detection along a different line. But if I'm an attacker, I like I don't want to use RC, you know, T curb roasting. It's like you're you ultimately have to decrypt the 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 ticket. And that's going to be done through brute force. And so one of the things that will happen is they'll request a service ticket with RC4 encryption because that's a more efficient algorithm to to crack. Yep. And that's not normal. And so like it's like, well, how much more expensive is it to crack AES-256? Turns out the answer is it's a lot more expensive. And so then it's like, okay, well, maybe it's not worth, maybe that amount of mimicry is not worth it to the attacker because now it's going to make it. Yeah, that depends, I guess. Impossible. Yeah. So, so yeah. what I see most of the, the guys in my red team do is, is they first, they probably do some recon first additionally, right? It's where you can actually figure out, Hey, this account has, has an SPN on it. Yep. And the password is from 2012. So, yeah, that's likely old, so probably crappy. So they'll actually do the, the AES-256 request for that one. Because the likelihood of brute forcing it within a feasible time, that one yeah. to three days, is pretty high. Um, it's and calculable, actually. It, like you could, yeah. you could literally say, I'm going to give it three days to crack. And if it doesn't crack, maybe then I would drop down to RC4. I don't think, exactly. I don't think a lot of people yeah. think that through, but like you, that would be the ideal. It's like, let's start with AS256 to match. Well, yeah, mo a motivated attacker will do that, of course. Yeah. So, so um, and, and then again, uh, the, 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 even the RC4 shouldn't be very prevalent but in in a lot of organizations that i come uh, or it, it it is right it's still there mm -hmm. um same with all the ntlm authentication so it's yep. it's pretty difficult depending on the organization to build a reliable detection solely on that request yeah uh, you can you can definitely have like a stupid one or a simple one not stupid um that looks for for bulk uh, because there's still 
like greedy, greedy attackers that will just gra get all the SPN uh, 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 attached uh, accounts uh, and get a TGS for it. But most of the uh, slightly more advanced ones won't, right? They will get one, two, three, five, maybe over time, not in the book. Um, and they'll spread so one of the other things you can either way. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and then. And then maybe maybe there, there, there's other things that you can do uh, in terms of implementations as well, where, where either Rubius, but also in Packet and, and a lot of the tools all rely on the same libraries, um, which are not always the same as the Microsoft built ones. Even though they adhere to the same RFC, they implement it differently, right? So there's all kinds of flags that might be used or other things that you could start looking at and build a way more reliable detection that way. But that requires probably at least uh, two, three, four times more time investment into understanding, maybe even doing PCAP differences and these kind of things to to see that. But once you have that, you have a, a very reliable detection because most, like 95, maybe 99% of the attackers won't, won't go into that depth. They'll use the standard libraries recompile it, do some other evasion uh, kind of like things for the EDR, or they think. Um, and that's it, right? So they all still have that same behavior. And that I think there, there it makes sense to layer your detections as well. So having, having multiple tripwires is totally fine. If if five of them go off, it's, it's pretty likely that it's actually bad. If one goes off, you might have to look a little bit more or further, yep. and, and preferably you start automating that to have that consistency and quality also there. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult sometimes. Yeah, I, uh, I just realized that for our viewers, I didn't give a good example why you want to like look for TGTs. A good example is ASRAP roasting. Another example is like when you do ask TGT and they want to pass the ticket, for example. Those are good examples. I just realized I didn't touch yep. on that. We kind of move forward. Um, so another thing I wanted to like talk about there. So like, anyways, yeah. So we need to understand like why we want to use a detection and what the, the purpose of it there. Not that it's not only that it's, I'm hoping to detect this one thing, right? Like great. But like, why is that interesting? So like service creation. So there's multiple layers. I'm gonna go through three different layers in a second and then let you guys kind of swim through the different layers here. So you have the, like, let's go back to service creation, service creation in my head, uh, like malicious service creation. We want to detect on that because we're hoping we pick up on a malicious service maybe before it's executed. Hopefully we have a detection or some type of detections that is built on, you know, service, uh, like service creation execution, something along those lines. Right. So those are, those are multiple sides there and that can come into detection layering. Now there's two, there's multiple phases of detection layering, but there's two I'm going to talk about right now. You have the detection layering of layering technique or operation detections on top of each other to make sure that like if someone's going down this chain, something triggers. Then you also have an uh, kind of zoomed in view of detection layering on one technique or like a set of operations. And that is I'm layering multiple telemetry sources together to detect this one type of thing that could be service ticket request, service creation, you know, com hijacking, a whole bunch of different stuff. I'm looking at this one thing and I'm hoping to do um, detect on it from multiple different sources. And then there's also the piece of at what, and this is, I'm going to get Jared on a big tangent here. I know I'm kind of setting them up here. <clears throat> Whenever we think about detection and a technique, right? Jared has recently came out with a set of blogs talking about operations and procedures, right? 
So whenever something is executed, yes, it is a procedure, but that is really just a sequence of operations. The question then becomes, which operation do we want to detect on, right? Um, so let me give an example, and I'll just let you and Olaf kind of go. Do, L- do LSAS dumping. That's what I'm doing. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the easiest. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's, it's the easiest to explain. So, so in dumping LSAS, let's just, uh, you know, Let's talk about like out mini dump, for example. There's, there's in the code wise, there's many things happening, but there's really uh, one, two, three ish, maybe four operations being done. The first one is process enumeration, right? So I'm going to enumerate whatever uh, process LSAS is because I need the PID to pass that into open process, which is going to be uh, the process open or process access operation, right? I need to get a handle to it in order to properly read the memory of whatever that process is. Then you have the next operation of process read. You could have like create file and things like that, depending on if many dump, write dumps done or reprocess memory. I'll leave it at those three operations. And the question is, where do we want to create a detection? Why? And where we can't de- like create a detection in the most ideal place, what would be the secondary yeah. operation we want to go to? All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna relay it out a little bit just to make it very clear. So let's say that for out mini dump, there's four four different operations. Process enumerate, which is I have to enumerate the processes so that I could get the process identifier for LSAS, right? In theory, there's potentially numerous ways. There's actually a really great blog post from somebody from MDSEC, I think it is, that talks about like 10 different or 13 different ways to get LSAS process ID. So that's kind of cool. So process enumerate, process open. I have to open a handle to LSAS in order to read from it. Process read, which is where I actually read the contents of LSAS memory, which is where the credentials are stored. And then Outmini Dump also writes writes a dump file to disk, right? And I would say that generally speaking, the two most common operations that people build detections on are the the file write, which is the the dump file being written to disk, and the process open, which is the opening of the of the read handle. And a lot of times they'll focus on specific. Sometimes they do this incorrectly, which we touched on on our last live stream. But uh, they'll they'll focus on particularly when an, a handle is opened with the read access write. Does that make sense? So, so those are the two common ones. I actually would say that ideally, you would focus on the process read operation. I could explain why in a second, but I'm curious. I, I think I know what the answer is, but Olaf, I'll give you a chance to respond. Yeah, you already gave the answer, right? So, okay. so I, I, I totally agree. I, I definitely, if I have the telemetry available, which is the caveat there, but yep. um, um, and that, that I think that's also the answer to your second question. But if the, I have the telemetry available, I'll always go for the for the process read because this is the bit that that you need for getting the creds, right? Yep. So the handle, sure, that that is a leg up. There might be other ways of getting a handle actually, and you can proxy it or you can steal it or. You can even you can even fork LSAS and then nobody will see you. Um, but this the read will still be have to, will still have to happen. Uh, the file write is optional, I think, because you can also do out mini dump and, and collect it like in memory. In memory. Uh, so um, yeah, getting the handle is then sort of the secondary best thing because Sysmon can give you that information and it doesn't show you the 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 the, the, the process reads. Uh, which MDE does and some of the other ADRs actually do. And they sometimes even show you how much memory is read, which is amazing because then you can make the distinction between, hey, it's only reading the command line arguments from memory or it's dumping the full cred set. Um, so, yeah, 
I okay, think that, so, that's sort of. Yep. So I agree with that process read. But I like one of the questions that I kind of asked, because one of the things that I always think is this seems intuitive to me, but it's not necessarily intuitive to like students or customers that we're trying to work no. with. So I try to figure out, like, is there actually a system? Can I reverse engineer my intuition or my heuristic to like identify what the actual process for choosing which operation, um, how it works? Right. And what I've come to is in logic, there's this idea that called necessity and sufficiency. And so you think about what is your goal? In this case, our goal is to read the credentials from LSAS, right? At least that's our, that's like our proximal goal. That's the goal that we're like focused at, at that level of analysis. Like your ultimate goal might be to steal, steal proprietary information or some crap, but like this at the proximal level at that action, you're trying to steal credentials from LSAS. And so the question is, is, as you analyze each operation, you can analyze it along the, whether it's necessary, whether it's sufficient, whether it's both, or whether it's neither. And let me explain what it is. Necessary means that in order to achieve the goal, I have to do this step, right? I can't skip it. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gate that I must pass through. Sufficient means that if I observe this operation, I can infer that the goal was achieved, right? So by, by seeing this operation, I then know that like if if b then a is kind of the way that that works right and then both would be both and neither would be neither so if we we start going through that it's like is process enumeration is that necessary sufficient both or neither it's sort of neither it's, it's sort it's... of neither but maybe we could say that it's necessary at best right um yeah but there's like you think about it's not sufficient because there's tons of different reasons why I might enumerate processes that are completely unrelated, right? And so th those reasons are all false positives, right? So every, every reason why you might enumerate processes that aren't related, false positive. Then you say, okay, process open. Is that necessary, sufficient, both or neither? It's necessary, but it's definitely not sufficient because I can request full reads yes. and never use it. And this is happening a lot. So Yes. Okay. So, yeah, so that's the problem, right? So, um, there are tons of reasons why I might open a handle with the read access right. Maybe I'm just lazy and I ask for uh, process all access access rights, which is like all the different access rights. Which and happens I, a lot. Happens. Yeah. A, that's mm -hmm. the most frequently requested set of access rights, right? Um, and and so if I do that and then I don't use it to read, that's a false positive, right? If I were to let's say I build my detection focus on process open. Okay, so so far we're talking about false positives, right? Then I get to process read. Right? Is that necessary, sufficient, both, or neither? I think I think it's both. It's it's both, right? So at least from the context of our ability to perceive things, right? So like we can't see into the attacker's mind. That would be the ultimate, right? And so based on our perception, that's what we're that's that would be both, right? So you say not only do you have to read the memory, but reading the memory is sufficient for telling us that the memory was read, if that makes sense, right? And so that means that we've limited Sufficiency means that we've limited false positives as much as we possibly can from the, remember I talked about detection and discrimination, from the detection perspective, we've minimized false positives, right? And then we go to the file, the file right, is that necessary, sufficient, both, or neither? Yeah, I, I lean towards the neither, maybe, maybe the necessary, right? But it's definitely not sufficient because there's so many ways of dealing with that dump that you don't really... But, yeah. So, well, I would say that it's, I would say it's sufficient in the sense that if you could tell that it was 
you were dumping the memory of Elsass, and it would be sufficient to say that you've read Elsass. Does that makes yeah, sense? that's fair. That's but I don't, fair. I don't have to do that, and so it's not necessary. It can't be necessary because I could choose not to dump it to disc. And so, yeah. and so the interesting thing is that su- well, ne- necessity maximally limits false negatives because in order to achieve the objective, you have to do that thing. Sufficient sufficiency maximally limits false positives, right? And the necessary and sufficient operation is where you maximize the the reduction of both false positives and false negatives. And that's why the process read is the ideal operation to build your detection around. Now, as you as you mentioned, Olaf, right? Because um, anytime that I read process memory from LSAS and then I don't write the file, if I were dependent upon that file write to occur. That'd be a false negative. Is the end. that's okay? So as you said, not all EDRs have have that process read. So if they do have that process read, great, because now I have the the optimal operation to focus on. But if they don't have it, which direction do you go? Do you go the direction of sufficiency and look for the file write, or do you go the direction of necessity and look at the process open, and why? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll 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 take the cop out. I'll I'll do both, and I'll assign different different levels of confidence and priority to both of them. Yeah, but I, I still want to know both, and I, I I might even make a third that correlates it. So if I see the the, the handle and the right mm. that has a different level of confidence and priority than either or of the other ones, so the file right will probably take precedence of the handle mm. because the handle, as we already know. It's it's like crazy annoying. Uh, so many so many people uh, are requesting all kinds of access yeah. rights that they they'll never use. But somebody on Stack Overflow wrote it, and everybody's copying pasted that. So now it's there. Um, so yeah, that's the, the least reliable one, but still it's an indicator of potential compromise in sequence with something else. So having the tripwire there would be something but i wouldn't rely upon it gotcha yes okay so so having a sorry the correlation piece just make sure i understand so like having a detection where the same process that requested a handled lsas wrote to a file um is kind of what you're saying another alternative would be if you had like read memory if you did like a correlation between that's way easier yeah yeah you could do that in the file but that might even you know they don't have to write to that file right so that could even limit one pro- one one practical problem in this example is that you you don't just because a file was created you don't actually know that it's the contents sure. that it's the contents of LSAS but I'm kind of pretending that we do know that for this exercise I suppose and so the the question that I'm asking is really like if you don't take the cop out answer Olaf the question is is are you going to if you only had one choice are you going to err in the direction of reducing false negatives which would be going towards open process the process open or are you going to err in the direction of reducing false positives, which is the file write? And, yeah, and the I'll answer is, go is that for the uh, for, for the false negative side, right? Because it's I the, the file write you you need to you need to get a handle. Uh, either you steal it or you or you have it. Uh, I'd never go for solely the file write because it's it's a fifty fifty. Is it like a coin flip? Uh, whether it will occur in the first place. So. Yep. I'd rather go for the for the noisier one and figure out a way to make it um, acceptable for mm-hmm. for like the analyst analyst level, whether it's like only an indicator or something else. But yeah, it's dangerous to to sort of close your eyes to most most of the probability. 
So that yeah, so I agree with you. That's what I would choose to do. This is actually a philosophical debate. This this is where you would say that there's two schools of thought, right? When people say like, oh, there's two schools of thought in this topic, that's what they're talking about is those who err towards false negatives and those who err towards false positives. Like, uh, and you could actually look at people like as people write about detection rules or like produce detection rules for things like sigma, you could actually go and look at it and see whether they have a tendency to err in the in the direction of the sufficient condition or err in the direction of the necessary condition. And so once you start, once you have that heuristic in your head, you're like, okay, here's a detection that's looking for this. Is that sufficient or is that necessary? And you could actually start to see, you know, how do I feel about that? Right? How do how do I feel? How do I want to align my wrist to that? And then let me, as I'm taking in, in input from other people in the community, I should pay attention to how they appear to be doing it. So there's going to be certain people like myself that are going to err in the direction of necessity. And there's there's a cost to that, right? Which is you're going to have more alerts. And then there's people that err in the direction of sufficiency. And there's a cost to that, which means you're going to have less coverage, right? And like you have to make that decision for yourself. But once you have that mental model, now you can start to make a decision of who who should you be kind of following who should you be taking input from or how critical should you be of certain input that you're receiving from different people yeah i i, I agree in in general i think i think there's a nuance where where practicality beats uh, uh like the, the like the other approach but then still um there, there are ways to deal with it right yeah. so you can bake bake a signature rule or you can have multiple steps of a behavior uh, combined over multiple rules and have that as your as your detection yep. uh, approach which i think is is safer and and more resilient for unknown unknowns whereas if you write a very tailored uh, like single point uh, detection that's great for the threat intel report you've, you've read or the, the 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 sort of basic analysis that you did in your lab but it doesn't really scale to a production environment i think yeah um I would but, say, yeah. um, like my philosophy is that I'd rather be at the table and have the opportunity to like show up and get the right answer as opposed to, you know, taking like not making it to where I don't even have a chance to be at the table. That's why I err on one side of the, of the discussion. Of course, like in reality, you don't, it's not an either or problem. Like you could do both, but I like, I think that, I think that it's valuable for people to have that conversation as if. They, they can only choose one so that they know where they stand. And then you can approach it with less constraints. It's always better to like think about how would I handle this, in my opinion. It's better to think, how would I handle this in a constrained environment? And then it's like, okay, well, if we remove the constraints, and I don't have to do that, but at least I know how I would answer that or how I should bias myself. Yep. I think, I think that I, that's also where I think some of our, our research work sometimes differs, right? Where... I tend to focus more on the practicality side and you and you tend to lean more towards the I want to know the full spectrum like with the LSX example and I think this is also where your training is about right uh, yeah where where you actually wanna figure out what is this function call doing and how is it being called what are the operations that are after after that's being called with Telemetry wise, usually isn't very feasible to do anything with, right? But by by knowing how that sequence of events actually occurs, you can 
make a better informed decision on how you want to detect and prevent stuff that that's yep. basically the gist of it right yeah i would, I would say that i, I know we got to drop because luke luke has has to go but um I, w- I would say generally speaking there are going to be constraints that we face that are going to limit our ability to have a perfect solution all there's going to be many many constraints right but my question is, is how do we maximize our ability within those constraints right and and from my perspective the way that we maximize our ability is we have to know all of what's I say all of what's possible. It's not literally all of what's possible. To to think that we know everything is is ignorance, right? Like yep. so- Socrates would say, like I I know that I don't know is basically the idea, right? So you literally you have to be aware of your limitations. But generally speaking, the more that I know, the more that I can maximize the space that I'm operating within within the constraints that I'm that I'm given. And so if you approach it with the constraints in mind, you might not explore something that is actually practical because you you thought that you couldn't do it or maybe you, you yeah. didn't go down that path. I think I think practicality grows whenever there's like evolution in a in a conceptual th- like theory or thought. And so like Agreed. yeah, so I think like that is where without those thoughts then the new ideas by which we want to evolve practically don't. I think you know, I always like to think I have one foot in the conceptual, one foot in the practical, because I like to transfer the idea into being like, oh, so this isn't practical. OK, let me build this. Right. And let me show you the practicality or how it could technically be be practical eventually. Yeah, because practicality is a factor of like timeline. Right. So like some, like, for instance, when I first started in the industry, things that are trivial today were not practical. Right. We didn't even have e, we didn't even have ERs. And so if everybody just limited themselves to practicality, then, you know, we wouldn't be where we're at now. Right. So there's some sort of timeline thing there's some sort of personal skill set thing right so something that's practical for me might not be practical for somebody else there's some sort of technology issue to where like we have numerous customers and some there's some customers where something is completely practical and then the same thing would be completely impractical for another customer so there's there's like practical is an interesting thing because it, it really depends on a number of different variables and how you how you perceive it but like that's one of the things i learned very early on which just to kind of finish off one of the reasons why i think the ability to program at least to some degree is is extraordinarily valuable is because when you're a programmer the confines of practicality expand almost unlimited like in an unlimited fashion right so like one of the things that i learned early on in the air force was uh you know, we can't get new applications because there was this whole like certification process that you had to go through before you got a new program on on the Air Force environment. But if you wrote something in PowerShell, which was a scripting language, then it, it was considered to already exist within the environment because it's just a scripting language. You're just writing a script. And so what I did is I basically wrote full on applications in PowerShell. And I, the whole thing was something that wasn't available to me was now available to me because I wrote a script to do it, you know? And so that, that's one of the big aspects is like your conception of what's practical changes as you are able to expand that, expand that point, I guess. Yeah. I like that. Cool. Cool. Well, a lot. Thanks for joining us again. I'm hoping maybe yeah, after this is the 29th. So after another 28 episodes, we'll have you on again. Oh, geez. Maybe come out. <laughs> Happy to join. Yeah, cool, man. All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Um, sorry to cut this a little short, but Luke has a meeting he has to jump to, unfortunately. But uh, thanks, Olaf, for joining us again and uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. And congrats on the acceptance to Black Hat. Um, 
really I'm, I'm happy to see you at black hat because yeah, i live here so definitely what sounds like we might be able to see each other see each other sooner than later before black hat yeah we can't talk yeah. about that we've been i've been instructed not to talk about that yet so <laughs> <laughs> nice. maybe next well, week it's gonna be fun cool all right guys thanks everybody thanks everybody bye Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website, DCPPodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store, where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you.